So I love children's books. And I love reading children's books to my kids. And my daughter, uh, Maymay, asked me to, to make sure you know that one of our favorite books to read is a book called Bunny My Honey. I love that little book. Um, but the book I want to talk about tonight is another bunny book. There's lots of great children's books that have to do with bunnies. And really one of my absolute favorites is one that's called The Runaway Bunny. Do y'all know this book? The Runaway Bunny? Really? A few of you do, but not enough. Yeah, Natalie does. She's all excited. The Runaway Bunny is, is an awesome book. It's basically about a little bunny who wants to run away from home. And so he goes to his mommy and he says, I'm running away. <laughs> Which is what you know, little bunnies do, I guess, if they're going to run away. The mommy says, if you run away, and I will run after you, for you are my little bunny. And that sort of sets up the whole premise of the book. The bunny says, if you run after me, then I'll become a fish in a trout stream, and I'll swim away from you. The mommy says, if you become a fish in a trout stream, then I'll become a fisherman, and I will fish for you. And on and on it goes. The bunny suggests some new idea, some new plan. He's going to become something so that he can get away. And the mommy says, well, then I'll become this, and I'll get you. Finally, you get near the end of the book, and the little bunny says, I'm going to become a little boy and run into a house. And the mommy says, if you become a little boy and run into a house, I'll become your mother and catch you in my arms and hug you. Shucks, said the bunny. I might as well just stay where I am and be your little bunny. And so he did. Have a carrot, said the mommy. I love that. Oh, shucks. I might as well just stay where I am and be your little bunny. And that's what he did. The runaway bunny finally realizes, right, that the relentless pursuing love of his mommy is what he really wants and what he really needs. We're going to look at another story about relentless pursuing love tonight. So I believe that what Jesus teaches us in this story we're going to look at tonight is that every one of us was made to be relentlessly pursued. And as we talk about who is the real Jesus, I hope that we'll see that he is the one we were made for. As St. Augustine said almost two millennia ago, that God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in him. That's the heart of this story we're going to look at in John chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, follow with me. We'll start at John chapter 4, start at verse 4 of this story. Now Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. 
Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you've nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that that place where we must worship is over in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called the Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking, I am. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him, toward Jesus. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, 
We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Let's pray and then we'll open up this story. Lord, we do thank you. You are the Savior of the world. We thank you, Lord, that you speak truth to us through these words. That the Father is seeking worshipers. And Lord, that gives us such great hope and great encouragement. Because if the Father is seeking worshipers, then we can have hope that we will be found. Thank you, Jesus, that you did everything necessary for us to be welcome into the Father's embrace, to worship him. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the one who pursues those who need pursuing wherever they hide. We pray now, even through the foolishness of preaching, that you would seek us and find us here tonight. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Who is Jesus? It's what we've been talking about this semester and will continue to talk about. Here, we see that Jesus is a relentless, pursuing lover. Maybe a little strange to think of Jesus that way. Charles Wesley wrote that hymn, Jesus, Lover of My Soul. It's one of the best-loved hymns of all time. But you know, his brother John Wesley thought it was just a little too familiar and did not include it in the Methodist hymnal. It's become one of Charles Wesley's best-loved hymns of the 6,000 hymns he wrote. And yet even when he wrote it, his brother thought it was just a little too familiar, maybe pushing the envelope. But you come to a story like John chapter 4 and you realize Jesus likes to stir up longings and even appeals to this woman who's had five husbands and he wants to stir up longings. It's very interesting. It's not the way we tend to think of religion. We tend to think of religion as a way to keep longings from getting out of control. But Jesus appeals to this woman through her longings. Well, let's look at this passage. You know, it's often the miracles or the wise sayings of Jesus that astonish people. You can read in the various gospels. There are four gospel accounts that include all these stories about Jesus, what he said and what he did. And typically when it says that people were astonished, it's either at some miracle he did or some teaching that was profound and confounding often. This is interesting. It says here that the disciples were astonished. Why? Because when they came back from the town, they found him talking to a woman. Now, this is one of those passages that for you to understand the full significance of it, you need to understand a little bit of the cultural background. After all, Jesus, a Jew, is in Samaria. And if you don't understand the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans, and you don't understand the relationship between men and women in the first century in this area of the world, you'll miss some significant things about this passage. So why are the disciples astonished? Well, the disciples are astonished because, first of all, she's a woman. She's a woman. And in this culture, at this time period, men did not speak to women. Certainly not alone, certainly not in public. 
Uh, Kenneth Bailey, who's a New Testament scholar who spent his entire career in places like Syria and Palestine, um, ministering and teaching in Christian seminary, said that in his 60 years living in the Middle East, he's never spoken to a woman one-on-one in a public place like this. You just don't do that. I was thinking, my wife and I were talking about this, because we have people from the Middle East that live next door to us. And while you might talk you know, friendly to some of the daughters that are more, you know, your age, like you understand that you don't talk to the mother, to the matriarch, and you don't look her in the eyes. Now, Americans tend to be kind of oblivious to these sorts of social customs. If you maybe have lived overseas or you've traveled much overseas, um, if you talk to somebody who's from that culture, they'll generally tell you, don't look a woman in the eye if you're a man because it's just not appropriate. It's not done, you're communicating things you don't mean to communicate. Even talking to a woman in public was taboo. It just wasn't done. And yet here Jesus is, breaking right through that barrier. She's a woman, but he's talking to her. Not only that, she's a Samaritan woman. Now you need to understand, the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. Hated each other. As a matter of fact, it was about 150 years before this that when the Greeks ended up taking over Israel and Palestine, they used Samaria as their base of operations. Who are the Samaritans? The Samaritans are the people who, when God's people of Israel had been taken out into exile, then other people were brought in to marry with the Jews that are left. And so the Samaritans, from the Jewish perspective, are half-breeds. They're half Jewish, but they're not pure. And not only that, religiously, they don't believe the right stuff. And you get a sense of that because she starts arguing with Jesus about where you should worship. We Samaritans think you should worship on that mountain. And you Jews think we should worship in Jerusalem. The reason this was was because the Samaritans only believed in the first five books of Moses. They didn't believe the rest of the Old Testament was God's word. So they had huge differences about God and about worship. She's a woman, she's a Samaritan, and she's a social outcast. How do we know that? Because she's by herself at noon. In this part of the world, it's probably 100 degrees at noon. And you don't go to the well to draw water at noon. And you certainly don't go as a woman by yourself. What generally would happen, this well still exists actually, what happened, the way you go draw water at this well is you go early in the morning and the women go together in a group and they socialize as they work. Jesus does not need to use any of his supernatural power to know that there is a story here. If this woman shows up by herself in the heat of the day to draw water, she doesn't want to be around the other woman, the other women, or they don't want her around them. So Jesus knows that there is a story. It's written all over her. And then he begins to pursue her with questions. And it comes out pretty quickly that she's not just a sinner. She's a broken, pitiful person. You have to understand, when it says that she's had five husbands, and the guy she's with now isn't her husband, here's what you need to understand. 
easy, no-fault divorce was practiced widely in the first century, and it made women extraordinarily vulnerable. It's actually still the case in our day and age. I remember um, years ago, back when I was a musician and thus had to have other jobs to make ends meet, I was a census enumerator. I had a little badge and I would knock on people's doors if they hadn't filled out their census form. And my area was Bellevue. Some of you may have been Bellevue, it's like Percy Warner Park. Lots of apartment complexes in Bellevue. And you know what broke my heart? Most of those apartment complexes out there were filled with single moms with kids who'd been divorced and were living in poverty. You hated to even ask them because I had to ask them what their income was. Over and over and over again, the same story. Maybe some of you are in that case where divorce didn't just rip your family apart, it plunged you into poverty. It's one of the leading causes of poverty, as a matter of fact. And it was that way in the first century too. This woman has had five husbands. The only way that could happen is if they kept basically divorcing her over and over and over again. And now she's so far down the social ladder, the guy she's with now won't even marry her. And yet she's still with him. She can't find someone to marry her. And yet she's still with him. Do you understand what that means? She's a pitiful, broken vulnerable woman, full of shame, who can't even hang out with the other women in the village and has to come at noon in the blazing heat. And now this Jewish man, not only is he talking to her, he's making himself vulnerable to her. See what he does? Jesus lets the disciples go into town and he stays behind, but he doesn't keep the water jug that they need to be able to get water from this well. He deliberately sits at this well without anything to quench his thirst and sets himself beneath this woman, makes himself dependent upon her, showing him kindness. It's a remarkable story. She's lonely She's full of shame. Everything she's looked to for in life for safety and security and love has let her down. What's remarkable about that story is she's closer to the kingdom than almost anybody that Jesus meets. She's certainly closer to the kingdom than Nicodemus, the teacher in Israel who Jesus talked to in chapter 3. We're only one chapter past that now. And this woman becomes the first Christian missionary hero. This woman who's had five husbands and the man she's with now won't even do her the dignity of marrying her. Now I want to say this. Shame is still such a powerful force. Never underestimate the power of shame to make you hide. It makes this woman come in the middle of the blazing sun. It makes no sense to come to this well in the middle of the day. But shame will make you do all kinds of things to hide. Dan Allender, who's a great uh, Christian counselor, said this about shame. The dread of being found out is sufficient to fuel radical denial, workaholism, perfectionism, perfectionism, 
re-victimization, and a host of other ills. But the fear is greater than simply losing relationship. The fear at the heart of shame is the terror that if our dark soul is discovered, we will never be enjoyed, nor desired, nor pursued by anyone. And I would argue that deep in the heart of everyone in this room is that kind of fear. We hide it, we try to cover it up. But the good news tonight is that Jesus knows and Jesus pursues people hiding in all kinds of ways. She's hiding by coming in the middle of the day, but Jesus is there. Where are you hiding that you think Jesus won't be there? You know that Psalm 139? If you're one who is wanting to understand something about hiding, that's a great psalm. A lot of people think it's a warm, comforting song. You know, wherever I go, there you are. If I make my bed in the depths of Sheol, you're even there. And then you stop to think, you go, wait, why would I want to make my, de- my bed in the depths of Sheol, hell? And then you read the second half of the psalm, and you find because this person has been taken advantage of in horrific ways. And the only thing they want to do to cover their shame is hide. But there's nowhere you can hide that Jesus can't go and that Jesus won't go. She tries to hide by deflecting his questions. There's a lot of people that that take this tact. When God starts to probe the painful things in your journey and in your past, it's, it's It's not that uncommon to throw up a theological argument to deflect. Well, I know the Bible says this, but how do we know the Bible's really God's word? I mean, it was written by men, and it's come down through the centuries. We have all kinds of clever ways we try to evade God and his word. She tries to have an argument about theology, about where we should worship, but Jesus just doesn't go there. He presses through it and said, okay, look, the Jews were actually right, but that's not the point. The point is the Father is seeking worshipers. The astonishing thing that you need to know as you're hiding here in the middle of the day at this well and as you're trying to keep me away from probing those painful places in your life, the thing you need to know is the Father is seeking worshipers. Here I am seeking you, offering you living water. He pursues her, but he doesn't start an argument with her. In this case, see, with Nicodemus, he starts an argument. But with her, she tries to start an argument to deflect him, and he won't go there. Instead, he asks questions, and he draws her out. I love this verse in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 3. Speaking about the Messiah who was to come, it said this, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Have you ever snuffed out a candle? Just that last little wisp of smoke? That's what it means, a smoldering wick. He's so gentle with her. And here's the good news. Whether you're someone in need of Jesus starting an argument with you, or whether you're a smoldering wick about to be snuffed out, Jesus is wise enough to pursue you 
and to find you. It's good news for those of us who are trying to hide. Why does he pursue her? Well, he says it's because the Father is seeking worshipers. One of my favorite sayings I ever heard John Piper say is in his book on missions, which is actually my favorite book of his. He said, basically, it's a simple, simple but profound truth. Missions exist because worship doesn't. God is seeking worshipers, not just because he's insecure and he needs the adulation of everyone he's ever made, but because he made us to worship him. It's good for us. It's what we were made for. In Isaiah, it says that it's too small a thing for the Messiah merely to go to the Jews. God had said this. It's too small a thing for my Messiah to go only to the Jews. I will make him a light to the Gentiles that they may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. God, for a long time, has been telling his people, I'm seeking worshipers from every race, tribe, tongue, and nation. His disciples shouldn't have been surprised at all that he's talking to a Samaritan woman because the Father's seeking worshipers. So what does he offer her? Living water. Now, what does that mean? At the most basic level, living water means running water rather than a stagnant pool. That's what living water means, okay? So he's telling her, I'm going to give you fresh, life-giving water. But notice he doesn't approach her by pointing out her guilt, even though she has plenty of guilt. He doesn't approach her by telling her that her ideas about God and about worship are wrong, though they are, but he approaches her through her longings and speaks about living water. Now, here's the thing. We all live with longings. It's part of what God made us about. There are so many religions and philosophies that are about either killing our desires, killing our longings. This is basically what Buddhism and Stoicism are about. Kill your longings. It's the best way to get through life. Or then there are sort of on the other hand, like Epicureanism says, worship your longings. It's what life is all about. Live it to the fullest. Christianity takes neither of these approaches. Christianity says, God made you with good longings. Be a steward of them. They're powerful and wonderful gifts that draw us farther up and deeper in. Why did God make us in a way that we would thirst and get hungry? Do you understand? That's what this passage is teaching us. The book of Ecclesiastes says that God has set eternity in the hearts of all men and all women. Yet, he has made it so that we cannot fathom what he's done from the beginning. So here's what Ecclesiastes says. God has put a longing in your heart, eternity in your heart, a sense that you know that you are made for something bigger and that there's a bigger purpose to everything. Yet, he's not given to you the full understanding of what that is, which is a way of saying God has created in you unsatisfied longings. The question is why? C.S. Lewis named it well when he named it the inconsolable secret 
I don't know if you know this sermon. He preached a few sermons in his life. One of them was called Transposition. And I want to read this quote from you. I put it on your outline if you want to follow. But here's what C.S. Lewis talks about when he he speaks about this, this longing. He says, in speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I'm almost committing an indecency. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you, the secret which hurts so much that you may take revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if that had settled the matter. Yet, the books or music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them, and what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty The memory of our own past are good images of what we really desire, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. The sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers The longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. Our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation worth pondering. What Jesus is showing us here is we can learn about what we really need from what he offers. Jesus doesn't come and just basically say, here, I'm here to meet your self-determined needs. Jesus comes to teach us about what we need, and one of the ways he does that is by telling us what he's come to give us. What Jesus offers is what we need. Even if you've been disconnected from your need for living water, through pain or through pleasure. There's lots of strategies we use to try to disconnect ourselves from what we truly need and what we truly long for. But Jesus says, this is what you need, living water. And it's something that God has been teaching his people that they need for a long time. Living water is the same kind of water that burst forth from the rock way back in Exodus chapter 17 when God's people, after they had come out of Egypt, were wandering in the desert. There's this amazing story where God promises to give his people water, but the way he does it is so interesting. He tells Moses that I, God, am going to stand before you, in front of you, with a rock On the other side, Moses, you are to take your staff. This is the staff of judgment that God had used to bring plagues upon Egypt who had oppressed his people. Take that rod of judgment, strike through me to the rock, and living water will burst forth. And Jesus says, now I am here to give you living water. 
In Exodus 17, God was teaching his people how the living water would come. It was only by him being struck with the staff of judgment. And now Jesus says to this woman, here I am. Here's the living water that you need. Jesus literally says, I that am talking to you, I am. That's a literal translation of the Greek. And you might, if you understand some of the Old Testament stories, do you remember at the burning bush when Moses asked God his name? Do you remember what he said? He says, I am that I am. Seven times in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I am. If anybody's ever told you that Jesus did not claim to be God, they're just wrong. The reason they're wrong is they don't understand when he claims to be God. But when Jesus stands here, talks about giving them living water, which is something only God himself has given them, and says that I am, he's claiming to be God himself. And when the Samaritans come and call him the savior of the world, he doesn't say, repent you idolaters. He deserves the worship and the adulation. And he knows it. And he's not embarrassed by it. To whom does he offer this living water? This is the last thing we're going to look at tonight. Well, he offers it to everyone. But it's sweetest to the broken. See, Jesus offered the same thing to Nicodemus. He talked to him about his need to be born of water and spirit. He's still talking about you need new life. You need this living water. Nicodemus doesn't get it. But she gets it. The woman at the well gets it. And then Jesus astonishes us by raising up this woman to be his first witness. You know why that's astonishing? Because in this day, she couldn't even testify in a court of law. Women were not allowed to testify in a court of law. And yet Jesus chooses her to be his first witness, to bring revival to the Samaritans. Jesus makes himself needy before here, yet with incredible gentleness he pursues her until she gets it, and then she brings her whole village to Jesus. When she realizes who he is, her life is turned upside down. Notice she's been avoiding people. She doesn't avoid people anymore. She goes into the village and tells everybody who he is. Jesus obviously thinks her testimony is precious and worth paying attention to. And what changes her is still the only real basis that we have for hope. Do you see that the Father is seeking worshipers? And Jesus says it's his meat and drink to do the will of his Father. That means Jesus, more than anything, wants to be about this work of his Father, to seek worshipers. You know, it's fascinating 10 miles from this well stood a temple, a temple to Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus, the one who proclaimed himself the savior of the world. 10 miles from this well. And after these Samaritans come and hear Jesus for themselves, what do they proclaim him? The savior of the world. God is still seeking worshipers and pursuing them wherever they hide. You know that book, The 
runaway bunny shows up in one of my very favorite movies, a movie called Wit. I know some people have seen this movie. If you haven't, you should have seen it. But I will, I will warn you, it's a very intense movie. Emma Thompson, one of my favorite actresses, stars in this movie. She's an English professor who's an expert in the sonnets of John Donne, in particular, the sonnet, Death Be Not Proud. Even though she's an expert in this sonnet, she's clueless about the spiritual significance of it. Dunn was a Christian, and this is a very Christian understanding of death and of resurrection and of the hope of the gospel. She doesn't get it at all, even though she's an expert professor in this sonnet. And then she's struck with cancer. And as she, as she wastes away, as she wastes away, God is pursuing her. There's this pivotal scene where her mentor shows up near the very end of her life, shows up, and Emma Thompson at this point can barely talk, but she indicates that she wants her mentor and professor to read her something. And the old professor lady picks up the runaway bunny. She picks up the runaway bunny, and she says, look, and she starts reading it, she says, ah, it's a little allegory of the soul. This book, The Runaway Bunny, is not just a story about a bunny. It's a story about a God who would pursue us. In Emma Thompson's case in this movie, it was through this cancer that would take her life. Do you believe that God is so committed to pursuing you that he would do it even through difficult things? He's wise. He's gentle. But he's relentless. The Father is seeking worshipers. That is our hope tonight. And Jesus will do what needs to be done. As a matter of fact, it's his meat and drink to do what needs to be done so that we could be pursued. I don't know where you're hiding tonight, but pray that Jesus would find you. Wherever you're hiding, he'll go there. He's already there. Even if you're making your bed in the depths of Sheol, you can't escape him. So quit hiding. Let's pray.